0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, we got to read Job's complaint. That Job couldn't find God. No matter where he went, God didn't seem to be listening. In the intervening chapters, two of Job's friends continued their conversation. They began to ask Job who he thinks he was to question God directly. And for Job's last response... He defends himself for no less than five full chapters of scripture. Exactly. And chapter 32 opens with the phrase, So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then a young man named Elihu stood up. This young man had been there all along, but since he was young he'd been quiet, up until this point. And now he stops. First he looks at Job's friends and takes them to task. You're not being good comforters, and you can't answer his questions, therefore your answers must be wrong. And then he looks at Job and begins to read Job the riot act. He says, But you have said in my hearing these words, I am pure, I have done no wrong, I am clean and free from sin, yet God has found fault with me. God considers me his enemy. But I tell you in this, you are not right, for God is greater than any mortal. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? God does speak, now in one way, now in another, although none of us perceive it. It tells Job, he may have started this blameless, but in defense of himself, he's become self-righteous. And in his self-righteousness, he's falsely accusing God of picking on him. Have you ever questioned God? God, why did this happen in my life? I know there have been several times in my life where I've said, God, Really? When I moved to New Mexico after having moved to Missouri just a few months before, God, really? Being offered a job in Philadelphia out of the blue, God, really? Now, I know most of the ones I'm comfortable talking about involve moving, which is a big life change. But it's pretty comfortable because we've all been there, or most of us have at some point. We've moved for a job. We've moved for a spouse. We've moved for some reason. And it's uncomfortable sometimes, and sometimes we Roll our eyes at the funny ways the other part of the country, the other part of the world lives. Now, I'll give you one of the ones I don't like to talk about. When I was a teenager, my Aunt Jewel was shot while sitting at her desk at GMAC Bay Meadows in Jacksonville. And she went to glory a little over a week later. That was one of those times where I looked to the heavens and said, God, really? And now, God answers Job's prayer. He awry rides in the whirlwind, and asks, "Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge?" Gird your loins up like a man, and I will question to you, and you shall declare to me. And over the next several verses, God asks Job to explain to him the working of the wind, the world, the universe, the wind. How do the animals take care of themselves? How is everything in control? Job, go ahead, tell me about it. Is God trying to humiliate Job in this moment? I don't think so. I think he's giving Job the literal answer to his prayer. Job wanted to talk to God as somewhat near equals? Fine, let's do that. And it must have been overwhelming for Job when God finally came. It's worth noting this isn't the only time in Scripture where people get their wish to talk to God. Jacob, of course, wrestles with an angel who he later figures out may not have just been an angel and gets his name changed as a result. But you will be called Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. And Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has persevered. When Elijah says, God, why am I the only person left in Israel serving you? God sends him up in the mountains. And then there's a whirlwind, and an earthquake, and fire. And God doesn't answer him out of any of those, but he does it in a still, small voice. And it reminds him that there are still over 7,000 who are faithful to God in Israel. A couple of weeks ago in Bible study, we read Acts chapter 9, where a young man named Saul was going about doing what he thought was the right thing. And as he was going and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul was blinded by this encounter, and only for a time. And a few chapters later, he gets a new name, too. But now, at the beginning of chapter 40, God asks, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let whom he accuses God come and answer him. And all Job can say is, Behold, I'm insignificant. How can I reply to you? I place my hand over my mouth. Why? Why? Because Job has realized what life he was trying to tell him was true. Over the course of his discussion with his friends, his defense became not about God or even about what happened to him. Instead, he turned into a full-throated defense of his own righteousness in himself. But even though I think Job has realized his mistake, still after saying he was going to be quiet now, God again looks at him and says, Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you will declare to me. Job, in his first cry out to talk to God, knew they weren't equal. He says it. Like our psalm says this morning, you wrap yourself with light as with a cloak and spread out the heavens like a curtain. Yet God, whose property is always to have mercy, came down and spoke to him. And that is where Job will find peace. Next week, we're going to see how Job finally responds to God and how God God responds to Job in reply. In our Old Testament, we saw God answering Job, much to Job's consternation. And this week in our Gospel, we see more questions asked and Jesus responding. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's interesting to note that when Matthew retells the story, Matthew mentions that it was his, their mother that actually went and asked the question. But that, that's a conversation for a different time. And he said to them, What does he want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Remember about a month ago we read Mark 9.31. I'll I'll recount it for those who may not remember or maybe were not here that day. It starts, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be traded into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. They did not understand what he was saying, but were afraid to ask him. And when they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? And they were silent, for on the way they argued with one another over who would be the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and the servant of all. Anyone remember that story? See some head nods. Last week we read about the rich young man asking about eternal life and turning away from Jesus. I want to read the three verses that we didn't read, either in that one or this one. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was happening, what was about to happen, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit upon him, and scorch him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. And the next verse is where James and John approach Jesus. If Job's being called out for sliding into self-righteousness, James and John are getting called out here for wanting to use God to give them power. Jesus looks at them and asks them if they could drink from the same cup as him, the cup he was just talking about. They confidently said they could. And it all ends up with Jesus calling and saying to all the disciples, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom you recognize as rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And thank God that that same high priest who gave himself a ransom for many became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is one of those odd characters in the Bible. He shows up once, and he gets mentioned two or three other times, and that's all we know. In Genesis 14, it mentions he was the king of Salem, which was likely Jerusalem, and a literal translation of his title is king of peace, for Salem meant Peace. In Genesis 14, we find out that the city-states around Abraham began to rebel, and they start a war against their overlord. And while they're doing it, they end up kidnapping Abraham's nephew, Lot, and making him a prisoner. And they wanted ransom. So Abraham gathered up the men in his group and some of his neighbors, and together they went and defeated the army and captured the kidnappers. And then they turned them over to the king they were rebelling against. Melchizedek was not listed in the king's taking part on either side of the war, but that day he was there. It was also said of him, he was a priest of the Most High. And Abraham gave a tithe of everything that they got in that battle to Melchizedek. And here we see a quote from Psalm 110, the other time in the Old Testament where Melchizedek is mentioned, where the the psalmist writes, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And here the author of Hebrews quotes it, that since our father Abraham tithed Melchizedek, his order has to be a higher order than that of Aaron and the Levites, since they were Abraham's descendants, and whoever pays tithes to another is the lesser vessel. Because of these reasons, Jesus is a greater high priest than the ones that were there. But he was a high priest who gave his life so that we could be free from the suffering of sin and death. And if we follow him, We can enter into the family of God, the God whose mercy is great and his love everlasting, and he will answer us in our time of trouble. Hopefully not like he did Job out of a whirlwind or out of an earthquake or a fire. But most often when God speaks, he still speaks to us in that still small voice. Remember that God promises he will wipe every tear from your eye. There will be no more death or mourning of crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Amen.